Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I, I feel like I'm losing my voice. You may end up having to take over the second half of this episode. So stand by. I don't by. think that's a good idea. I don't no? think that's a good idea at all. Well, we'll see if the voice survives. I don't know what it is. Don't know what's happening, but we are in episode, uh, season one, episode 15, otherwise known as episode 115. Chapter 14 of The Ambitious Card, for those of you scoring at home. Yes, we're, we're getting down there. We're getting down there. In this episode, we've got Harry Anderson stories galore. I uh, I love Harry Anderson. I miss Harry Anderson. If you are thinking to yourself, that name sounds, how do I, where Harry was on TV, the series Cheers, he played a con man that was fantastic. He had his own series, a couple of them, Night Court, of course, uh, and Dave's World. And uh, if you are just kind of knowing from that, you may be surprised about his long magical background and his incredible magical skill. Yeah, he's heavily revered uh, in the magic community and was a really good thinker about magic and about performance, probably because he started as a street performer and famously got his jaw broken by doing a con of some kind and decided to get off the street uh, and ended up, ended up, I believe, uh, doing a bit on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and someone right. at NBC saw that and wanted to put him on Cheers. His acting career started that way, and then uh, he got Night Court right after that. And I believe he called the head of NBC after he saw the first episode and said, "You need to get a real actor in here. I can't do it." Which I disagree with completely. If yeah. you watch the first episode of Night Court, he is there one hundred percent. It's Harry Anderson in all his glory. I uh, I should go back because I was a big fan of that show and watched all of it. But yeah, so I should go back because it's been that long. It's got to be out there somewhere. It's on one of the streaming services. I, I, would. I bought the box set just because uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. And mm. so we're going through those uh, one at a time. He also famously had a magic store in New Orleans. And then Katrina came along and devastated the city. And he was never able to get things up and running to his liking and ended up, I think, moving to Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, that's right. And one of his closest friends is one of our friends, Jay Johnson, the ventriloquist. Well, it was uh, it, it, just a delight to talk with Jay about anything, um, but really to hear him talk about his dear friend, Harry Anderson, was both hilarious and I, I'm getting just a little teary thinking about some of the things he said. So. Yeah, it was great. He, uh, For those of you who don't immediately know him, you do know him. Jay Johnson was on the groundbreaking sitcom Soap. I was lucky enough to work with him a number of times in the corporate world. I think I told a story about it last episode about someone saying he was being mean to me when in fact it was his puppet that was being mean to me. We had some great adventures on the road. I will just tell one, which it has no punchline, but it, it was involved our friend Gordon Schmooter, uh, where we had the idea that wouldn't it be funny if uh, at a corporate event, a moment in the event, uh, there was an executive who was going to come on stage and hand out a lot of bonus checks. Wouldn't it be funny if Jay came out with Bob and Bob had dressed himself up to look like that executive in an attempt to get the money? And we were lucky because the executive was already sort of a caricature. He had perfect features for it. And Gordon built a new head for Bob 
and we dressed the dummy just like this executive. And that idea continued with Jay and his career. Gordon built, I don't know how many different heads for him, where it became this thing like uh, executive impression with Bob. And there's always some nefarious reason why Bob wanted to dress up the executive. Uh, so it became kind of a little sub-industry there, fake Bob heads traveling all around the country. He's terrific. And if you ever have the chance to see him live, uh, we had him here at Sunday Night Magic. And... Um, he, I was laughing so hard. I was coughing things up. I, at one point I thought I might have to leave because I, I, I could get disruptive to the other people in the audience. And he, when he had the monkey, which is another one of his characters, and he kept yelling at me, shut up, shut up. It just, I couldn't take it anymore. I was laughing so hard. So he's terrific. Just a dynamite performer and, and so kind to talk to us about his good friend, Gary Anderson. Let's just go back to when, where, and how did you first meet Harry? The uh, Circus Circus Hotel in Reno had decided they wanted to do a comedy club, I guess. So they turned one of their lounges into a comedy club. And Mike Lacey of the Comedy Magic Club booked it because he knew everybody in the world. And I'm flying up with, with Mike Lacey to, to open this room. And he's like a great opening act for you. His name is Harry Anderson. And uh, he's very, very funny. He's a magician. He does this thing where he's, he sticks a needle in his arm and, and he, he does this and says, I can play melancholy baby for you. And the way Mike described the act of some guy jabbing himself with a hat pin, I thought, I, I don't know that there's any humor in that at all. I that's what he said, but I just didn't know Harry. So in this, this next uh, two weeks that we were, we just, we bonded immediately. I, I filled a role as his uh, pitch man, straight man, you know, uh, bumbling assistant or whatever it was just perfectly. And uh, so I guess by the time we were done with that, that run, we, we I, I don't think a week went by that we didn't call each other. I always say that I was uh, Harry, uh, Harry Ames was my opening act, you know, and he really was at the comedy club. So, but he just, he knew so much about so much. He, he feigned this character, this uh, con man kind of street guy. And, and that really, he was that street smart. But he really, uh, he was intellectual as well. He was like magna cum laude at his school or something like that. So he approached magic and uh, con man tricks and this character that he did. He just did all the research and just, you know, knew it very well uh, and wanted to be a magician. He wanted to be a magician more than than he wanted to be famous or he wanted to be an actor or he really whether he wanted to be rich. He just wanted to be a good magician. And uh, and I think he was. I, I don't know if. The, other than the magic world knows how good he really was, but uh, he, he really knew his stuff. Um, actually, my wife has just handed me a question, which we might as well just do right now because we're going to mix stuff up here. Um, she wants to know, did, did Harry ever tell you something when you thought he was being funny and he was really being serious where you thought he was making a joke and he went, no, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm, I'm seriously saying this. Hmm. He, he was very rarely serious. Uh, even his seriousness had had sort of a joke to it, you know. Uh, I, I can't remember a time when when he said something that uh, uh, I didn't understand. It was either a sincere emotion or a, a laugh thing. But uh, he would hit his head on something. I would say, "Are are you okay?" And he would go, "If I was okay, I wouldn't have said ouch." And that was this, you know. Are you are you you're okay? If I was okay, I wouldn't be throwing up, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh it's just uh 
Yeah, and he knew every line in the world. So, you know, but uh, we we talked about serious stuff a lot. You know, uh, he was a very political uh, left winger and so am I. And uh, we we had similar um, feelings about it. So we talked about that a lot. But yeah, it was just mainly, mainly having fun. You know, I, I look at comics and I know you do too, John and Jim. Uh, and funny things just happen to those people. They attract funniness, you know, funny situations and and that and they were able to tell about them. And I, and I think Harry attracted um, situations that were just not normal. You know, just just not normal. So I'm going to jump in there. Do you have a, an example of a favorite uh, story from Harry where something like that happened? Well, yeah. And it, it was like the within the first week that we had met. Um, so the pit bosses took an interest in us. So one night, uh, pit boss said something about it being a tough night. And, uh, and this guy with the cards, he said, maybe crypto card, everybody was talking cards. And I said, well, you know, Car Harry Anderson is maybe the best card guy in the world. I didn't know that. Had no idea. He's just, he's just my, my new friend. So they said, yeah, well, we are, we are the card experts here. That's, we are, we've seen it all. There's not, there's not a, there's not a trick in the world that we don't know. And I said, well, you've never seen Harry. And they said, well, no, we've seen, we've seen everybody. I said, well, okay. Yeah, maybe you have. And Harry wasn't saying much. And I thought that was the end of it. And they went, so he's good, huh? And I said, yeah, the best I've ever seen. And I've never seen him do a card trick at this point in my life. So they say, okay, okay. And literally, I feel like this. And, you know, they're pulling me by the collar. And they they drag us over to a, a 21 table that has got a tarp over it. And they pull the tarp off. They sit me down as and, and they sit with me either side at, at the uh, table. And they push Harry around to the dealer's side and throw him a deck of cards. And they say, okay, amaze us. But if we catch you, you're cut off. No drinks at the bar. Wow. So we went, okay. I didn't know what was going on. So Harry says, okay, I know how this works. You guys give me a, you know, you give me a, a, a rigged deck and I'm supposed to, they no, 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 no. Those cards are real. They're right off the, I don't believe you. He started running through them and shuffled them and ran through them again and said, okay, they're, they're good. Uh, these are cards. These are cards. And he put it down and, it was one of those talking tricks where it was like, um, you know, one day a king went down to the, the, the store for, for $2 and then he went for, and he did this, this whole thing with this deck. They, they were amazed. They said, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you did that. Uh, and so we were kings again. Now, what Harry told me later is that he knew that they were expecting manipulation tricks, you know? But what he had done is when he shuffled, he had arranged them in, a, in the way that he wanted them done when he was talking about, I, I believe you guys are cheating me. So they never caught that. So it was basically just turning over the cards that were there. There was no nothing but the fact he had memorized the deck, you know. And again, so Harry Anderson was was uh, the weird guy, the ventriloquist and the magician over there. Watch him, you know, watch him. So, Okay. Maybe two nights later, Harry's playing blackjack. I'm standing behind him. And he always said, he always played at three or four in the morning because there's not that many people and they don't rush you and everything. So I said, great. 
So I don't play cards. My math is not that quick, but he was playing blackjack, little Asian man sitting next to him. Uh, and it's a single deck. And Harry's doing okay, not making a lot of money, but doing okay. But one of the pit bosses that had seen him a couple of nights before walked over to this pit boss uh, when he called for a new deck. It's a new deck, new deck. So they bring over the deck and he puts it down. He looks at us and he says, you got to watch those two. You got to really watch those two. They're, they're really, uh, you know, just watch them. And it was kind of a joke, and the, but the dealer didn't quite know how to take it. Start the game again. Two hands in, the, the Asian man is dealt a red-backed card from a blue deck. Boom. And everything stops. Dealer puts up his hands like this, does a snap. Uh, pit boss is over there that fast. And he, the pit boss looks at the red card, and he looks at us, and he said, I hope that you guys had nothing to do with this. And we said, no, nope, not at all, not at all. And just as we think, oh, my God, how are we going to get out of this? The dealer said uh, to the pit boss, he said, I forget the word he used, but basically he used the word that I didn't uh, check the backs. I think he said I didn't fan them. Now, with a single deck, they're supposed to check because one out of a thousand decks might have a red card, might have a joker, might have a stuff. So they need to they need to spread them. And when he came up and said, watch these guys, it, it flubbed his routine and he he didn't do it. So he admitted that that was the mistake. And the pit boss said, okay, yeah, yeah, it happens more than. And he took the deck and he held it like this. And he said, in his two hands, and he said, uh, I'm really glad that you guys didn't have anything to do with it. And with his hand, he ripped the deck in two and threw it into the, into the container. I understand later that that's a trick that dealers could do. They, they fan the cards as they're, so they're really just, they're really just ripping one card at a time. It looks like the whole deck, but we were convinced. We didn't gamble anymore during that run. So yeah, that was the first week we had met. You know, that's the first, we, we just became a, a con team, you know, and the, the rumors then fly, you know, the rumors then fly. They had, uh, they had cheated the, at, the, at the games, but the guys didn't catch them and they did this and they, they did that. And by the time we left, uh, they literally turned that comedy club back into a kino bar. I mean, they, they said, that's it. That's it. They, we don't want anything to do with this. Yeah. There was one night that this lady in the front row was really, really drunk, too drunk to be there. And Harry looked on, he said, um, he said, we, um, we need to do something about that. And the bouncer wasn't interested. So he said, the only thing we can do is get her to leave on her own. And I said, how do we do that? He said, we have, we have to make her think she's going to throw up. I said, how do we do that? She said, well, we can do it. We can do it. I said, okay, you're on first. He said, okay, I'm going to be on first. Uh, so, so he goes out and he gets her attention and he starts something about um, this, this piece of liver. I had pieces of liver and maggots were eating through it. And it just, he went into a story about it. It really was stomach turning. And she goes, and she leaves. Success. Just as he is finishing up, she comes back and takes her seat. And as we cross backstage, he says, well, now you have to get her to leave. And I went, okay, great. So I got on stage and I had no idea, but at, at that time it was Bob. Uh, and, and when I took Bob out, Bob pretended he was sick, that he was too drunk. 
And he goes, I don't, I don't think I could have said anything. And he took the lid. He said, I think I'm going to. And he acted like he tossed into his suitcase. So he just put his head in and I just made vomit sounds. She's yep, she's out. So we both got her to thief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he made me do things that I didn't think I would do. Yeah. <laughs> was there a difference between Harry uh, either on stage or screen and Harry in real life? Uh, you know, there sometimes there's a difference. Between, yeah. Was there not not a lot of difference? Uh, he he was not that '40s character, you know, but he was that witty and, and that uh, that kind of guy. He was really generous and really kind. Uh, he, money-wise, he believed that you just, it's like a river. If, if you get some of it, you have to put it back and you keep it circulating. And so when he was working the street, if he had a really good, uh, good day and a good tip box, he would uh, tip the shoeshine guy, you know, 20 bucks to, for a shoe or, hit somebody else and just keep that money on the street, keep it going around. But he dressed like that, you know, most of the time he dressed like those painted ties and that fedora was always there. So yeah, I would say that, you know, if, if you step back and realize that every stage character is not anything but a character, they're, they're, what you saw was what you get. He was really honest and really blunt about it and really generous and really, he cared about people a lot. He, he would help people a lot. Right, uh, you know, he was so much fun to watch regardless yeah. of the medium whether it was uh, his character on cheers uh which launched him into other stuff i saw him live here uh i'm, I'm gonna guess 1980 87 then okay but he was there and he did uh, you know i had seen needle through the arm but i'd never seen it live and so it's amazing. he did yeah. Needle Through the Arm, which was obviously a showstopper in <laughs> any way, shape or form. And he followed it up by saying, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people here came to see Judge Harry Stone. And now they're thinking, what the heck is going on? Why? This guy just put a needle through his arm. So <laughs> anybody want to see a rabbit trick? And we all went, sure. And yeah, yeah. In his case and took out a a stuffed rabbit with a railroad spike and shoved it through the stuffed rabbits, spun the rabbit around and said, I don't think it's nearly as impressive, but you got to get the audience what they want. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he was. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what do you suppose as you look at it, what was the secret to that kind of sort of uh, lightning in a bottle that he could create? I've always thought that it was from his street days. You know, I've never worked the streets. I, I, I don't think I could because you have about two seconds to grab somebody's attention and hold it long enough for them to, to give you a tip. You have to be very quick and very fast and flashy and do something that stops them walking. Uh, and Harry was really, really good at that. So he just had that, he had a quick wit. A while ago, uh, you and I used to work together a lot. I was able to be involved in corporate shows that you did. And um, anyone who's done a corporate show knows that when the performer goes on stage, you're off doing other things. You know, once I got you on stage, I didn't need to worry about Jay anymore until Jay came off stage. But I had seen you enough that there's always a point where if, if I could, I would make sure I got back in the room to see that part of the act. <laughs> and that was always when you and Bob do the thing with the tape on the mouth, yeah. which is just so incredible. Was there something in, in Harry's act that you always wanted to make sure, oh, I want to, I want to make, you know, I've seen it a lot, but I want to see that thing one more time. That's my favorite bit. 
I think all of his bits were. I I loved watching the needle. I loved because I, I loved watching people watch the needle more than more than anything else. Uh, I loved it when he got into his stories and he was a little more. It was more of an acting experience on stage rather than a trick because he really knew how to weave a story and and get the audience there. But I would try not to leave the room no matter what, uh, even if I'd seen the act fifty times because you never knew. You just never knew. He would jump on an ad lib, and uh, one night we were at the again at the Comedy Magic Club, and it was a it was a benefit for children who had terminal cancer. I mean, it's sad, sad show. Now he was. We kept thinking, don't, don't, you know, don't go, don't go there, don't. And he would always get to the edge, and for us, we were going like this, and so he never did. But he came off stage, and he had a, a handkerchief that that we didn't know he had soaked in water and he did this he wiped his his head with the with the and and you know sweat just went like that and he said i'm dying faster than the kids and that's so he did it for us you know so yeah just water down his face yeah you always were wondering if this would be the time you know that uh we'd all get crazed oh one last story and i gotta tell you uh my ipad won't charge even with unplugged in. So I've got about 17% yet. So if I, if I suddenly go out, I'll give you a call or something. But anyway, my wife, Harry's wife, our accountant, uh, Bertie, and her husband all decided to go from San Diego, where we're all stand at the Dell, go across the border, eat some tacos at Rosarita Beach uh, at Ryle's Taco House. So we did. So coming back, we're driving along and it's, it's a, it's been a trap there for long. And I, I, first time I'd gone, but it says uh, uh, San Diego and it's a real quick thing. And so I just, Whoa, Whoa, I just turned and right. There's a cop right. There is a cop. And he comes up and he says, well, I got you for two things. I got you for turning from the wrong lane and illegal turn. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it seems like the same thing. He said, yeah, they, I got you for two things. I said, well, what, what, what can we do about this? And he said, um, well, uh, I, I think you'll have to go to the, to the station and, and pay a fine. And, and I, I said, well, wow, we, you know, we're, we got kids across the border. We need to go. Uh, wh- where's the, where's the station? And he said, oh, it's pretty far away. And I said, is there one closer? No, there's not that. You could, you could give me the money and I could pay it for you. And I said, oh, that would be great. That'd be great. So we can set up. I know. And Harry's kind of looking at constant. I said, well, how much would that be? And he goes, uh, now I have to back up and say, as the cop is walking up, Harry has said to me, don't mess with this guy. These guys are serious. Okay. Just play it cool. I mean, Hey, I'm cooler than you. Okay. We're good. <laughs> so the guy said, well, let's see. I got you for two things. I got you for an illegal turn. I got you for turning the wrong lane. I, uh, I think it would be about 50 bucks. And suddenly, Harry says, about, about? Fines aren't about. They either are or they aren't. You can't do about. It's not an about. I play a judge on television. Let me tell you something right now. You can't have it. And he just went off with this guy. I'm going, it's okay. Harry, it's okay. Harry, he just went crazy on this guy for his about 50 bucks. In the meantime, everyone in the car has 50 bucks out. And, you know, we we can't wait to, to shove him. The 50 bucks, but he just went nuts, just went nuts on the guy. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is when we get locked up, but we didn't. 
So that's that was life with Harry. Always something. Always something. I have I have one other story, and I, you know, you've got me talking about my my buddy, and um, he wanted his ashes uh, spread in Ireland, and so that was in his will that uh, my friend Turk and I uh, would go to uh, Ireland and spread his ashes, and and there was a budget for that to to fly over there and find it. Well, by the time we by the time we do this. Um, both wives say, well, we're, we're going to go too. And, you know, all the wives say we're going to go. And so, all right. So it turned out to be uh, Harry's new wife, um, uh, Elizabeth and Turk's uh, wife and me and my wife, Sandy, and my two kids, Harry's two kids. uh, And we all go to Ireland. We had been a couple of years before with Harry and, and Elizabeth uh, in Ireland, and we had gone to a little island, uh, island called uh, Inishmere, and we thought that'd be the appropriate place because it's a little island, very quaint, no cars, only uh, only buggy and horse. Uh, so we get there, and we tried to find the very driver that we got because we were there's a shipwreck there, and we we're going to do it at the shipwreck because it's very memorable. You know exactly where that shipwreck is on this. So we thought if we could just get the same guy that took us on our tour the last time, it'd be great. His, and I remembered his name was Michael and his horse's name was Bob. So we go up and, and we look around. There's no Bob. There's no Michael. So we just get a young kid and said, can you take us around the island? And he said, sure. So we get in the, get in the buggy and we're going along. And finally, we realize this is kind of a funeral. He was, uh, he was very, very sweet about it. And I said, you know, we were we were looking for Michael and Bob. I said, do you know, it's the last time we were Michael and Bob, do you, you know, Michael and his horse, Bob? And he says, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It's just, just a, a legend here on the Island. Yeah. He just passed. And we went, what? Michael passed. And so I have, I have this reaction like, Oh my God, this is just the weirdest thing. Uh, Harry's gone now. Michael's gone. And I said, Oh my God. I'm, I'm so, and, and the guy looked at me, like the wrong reaction he said no 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 he just passed that was him that was him just would pass that was it in the carriage that that, that was that was <laughs> michael and bob so <laughs> it was the big laugh yeah the big laugh oh. i have another story and then i promise you i i, I will continue but stop uh so uh since harry has passed i he he was good with coins and he was he was good with quick change and he knew he was always with cash and he always could figure the tip. And I mean, mathematics, he, he was a little bit savanty that way. Well, since he's passed, I find change in the very strangest places. And somehow I know that's Anderson has left it there. And, and that's just for me to say, you know, he's still around. We're somehow can't communicate, but I can send you a coin just to let you know I'm here. So I always pick it. I'm going to go. Thank you, Harry, and put it in my pocket. And then it'll be something else. So thank you, Harry. So a month ago, he, he passed away on the 15th, uh, 16th of April. So just last month, uh, we're remembering Harry and we got some Jameson and little toast and uh, thought of him all day long. And then Sandy gets the mail. And in the mail are two residual checks uh, both from both from Dave's World, because Sandy did a Dave's World and I did a Dave's World. 
both from Dave's World, Harry's show, and hers was for 11 cents, and my residual was for a penny. And there's no way, I mean, that's like finding a penny on the street, but it, it's even better because it came directly via Harry in some sort of way. So so I took the check and never, I will never cash it, but I uh, said, thanks, Harry. So so I, I still feel like he's around and, you know, playing tricks. So uh, never met anybody like him. Yeah, I don't think there ever was anyone quite like Harry Anderson. And I really wish uh, I could have met him. Yeah, I, I did not meet him, but I was uh, I consider myself blessed to have seen him live uh, at the Bowery Boys Comedy Club, now defunct. Um, and I, I really would have paid big money uh, to wander into his magic store in New Orleans and um, get a chance to stand just as a fly on the wall and watch him talk to other people. Um, he, he, I, I love him. I, I, I think, uh, he's one of those guys for me that, um, when I saw him, I, I was like, oh, oh, okay. That, oh, oh, okay. And it always just like bouncing off me and into me right away in terms of very formative in terms of my approach to an audience. Uh, it's me filtered through Harry and about eight other people. I think Lawrence Olivier said, uh, you, you steal from absolutely everybody and then you filter it through and no one really knows where any of it came from. But I owe a great debt to Harry Anderson and I, I wish to God I could tell him that. Yeah, he was fantastic. Uh, and if anyone gets a chance to see his per performance uh, as uh, Elwood P. Dowd, he did a TV version of the classic play Harvey. It's He's the ultimate... Uh, Elwood P. Dowd, even even above James Stewart, he does. Who's you saying? That's saying something, considering Jimmy Stewart. Is... Yeah, it's there's there's just something ineffable about the way uh, he performed Elwood P. Dowd that I would I would steer you towards seeing that with the caveat that for some reason a they cast uh, Leslie Nielsen as Doctor Chumley and b he chose to do it with a German accent, so I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> I don't either, but now I want to see it even more yet. I've seen just a little snippet of it. Uh, of, is it like available on YouTube or how would I find it? No, it was, I don't think it was YouTube. It was like an actual, one of those channels that has commercials. One oh, okay. of those streaming channels like Tubi or Roku or something like that. So anyway, yeah. thanks to Jay Johnson so much for taking the time to chat with us uh, about your, your dear, dear friend and uh, all those great funny stories, in particular the, the Mexico story about being uh, at the fine is about $50. About, about, fines are not about. Anyway, speaking of humor, uh, our, our next episode is double stuffed with humor uh, with both Derek Hughes and Nick DeFott talking about the role of comedy and magic and the role of magic and comedy. And it really doesn't stop either. <laughs> After we uh, thought the whole interview was over, uh, they popped back up. We thought they were gone and suddenly like, we can't figure out how to get out. And we talked to them for another 15 minutes about uh, other stuff, which was equally as delightful. Yeah, Is that so going to somehow end up in the... Well, there was no room for it in the actual show because we tried to keep these things to about an hour. Sorry when they creep over that. But there will be, uh, yes, we have a, a video of that will appear uh, with their episode on our YouTube channel. So subscribe to the YouTube channel so you find out that 
that it's there. Uh, it is really fun. It's not that they couldn't figure out how to leave. They didn't want to leave. Uh, yeah, they were having so much fun. They were having so much fun. Uh, so anyway, that's not our with next us, with each other, mostly. with each other. Absolutely. Yeah. If they could have found a way to get rid of us, they would have done that immediately. <laughs> probably, so that, probably still talking. That's our next episode. After that, we've got coming up. Oh, who do we have coming up? We have Mike Caveney. Uh, we have Carissa Hendricks, a.k.a. Yep, Lucy Carissa Darling. Hendrick. Silly Billy. Silly David Billy. A, yeah, David K. A.k.a. Silly Billy. Uh, Tina Leonard. John uh, Carney, who uh, I was delighted to talk to because I'm a huge fan. Yep. Uh, Steve Spill will be with us. And then we have a, uh, a special super secret guest for our final episode of season one. And speaking Fantastic. of season one, the yeah. season's been all about the ambitious cards. So let's jump into that next chapter. Our last chapter, we heard chapter 13 was uh, Eli was at Franny's house. She did a reading of him while he stood in the backyard. He recognized who Franny must have been talking to on the phone based on the repeated phrase, know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he went in search of that person, which takes us now into chapter 14. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 14. They say you can find just about anything on the Internet. And in this particular instance, they were right. As soon as I returned to my car, I googled the words Boone and DJ on my iPhone, and after just two clicks, I was on his website, which was a garish display that touted him as the Midwest's premier party machine. The site was rife with misspellings and fuzzy photos of the DJ in action, including some shots of female partygoers that were just this side of Girls Gone Wild. I scrolled past those and found his contact information, and in a few more clicks, I had cross-referenced his phone number and tracked down his address. As it turned out, he was just a couple of miles away at an apartment complex on Cedar Avenue, a stone's throw, assuming you have a good arm, from the massive Mall of America shopping complex. Finding Boone's building was no problem. He lived in a tired and worn three-building red-brick compound grouped around a massive pothole-pitted parking lot, which at that time of day was only about a quarter full. And finding his vehicle was even easier, unless there was more than one person in the complex who owned a piece-of-shit gray van with magnetic signs on the driver and passenger's doors that read, The Midwest's Premier Party Machine. I pulled my car a discreet distance away and put it into park, as I tried to come up with something that resembled a plan of action. I rejected my first two ideas and was forming a third when I looked up to see someone exiting the building and heading toward the van. It was Boone, his bulky frame covered in a dark wool overcoat. A black baseball cap was pulled down, shading his eyes. His stringy, blonde hair stuck out from under the cap, and he appeared unshaven and tired. Even at this distance... He looked like a poster boy for disheveled. He started the van and pulled out of the lot. Since I had no real plan of my own, I put my car into gear and followed him. As it turned out, it wasn't a long trip. Barely two blocks later, he pulled the van into the parking lot of the International House of Pancakes, which sits directly across a busy street from one of the multiple entrances into the Mall of America. I watched as he parked and shambled into the restaurant, which appeared to be in the midst of a mid-afternoon lull. Moments later, I spotted him again. 
this time through one of the restaurant's windows as he took a spot in a booth and began to examine the multi-page menu intently. I pulled into a parking spot that afforded a better view of his location and sat back to wait. With nothing to occupy my mind, I flipped on the radio to help pass the time. NPR was once again asking me for money, so I switched the radio off and settled in to wait and see what would happen next. What happened next was that Boone had a visitor. I was at a bad angle to see exactly who it was, but while I'd been fiddling with the radio, someone had joined Boone and was now seated across from him in the booth. Their conversation appeared to be decidedly one-sided, as Boone looked to be doing all the talking, while his visitor merely smiled and dipped a tea bag in a cup, and from the looks of it, made an occasional note on a pad. I started the car and moved it to a better vantage point to see who the mysterious visitor was. The move was all for naught, though, as reflections on the windows made it impossible to see clearly who was seated across from Boone. I was so engrossed with trying to identify the mystery person that I barely registered when my phone beeped at me. A second beep finally got my attention, and I yanked the phone out of my pocket to find I'd received a text message from Megan. You around, it read. No, I texted in reply, typing slowly and carefully on the small keypad. I'm in the parking lot of the IHOP. A moment later, she texted back the single letter, Y, question mark. Long story. Lunch again? May be tomorrow? Definitely. GR8. C.U. I spent several minutes trying to come up with a clever closing salutation of my own. As I sat there, lost in thought, I glanced up just in time to see Boone's van pull out of the parking lot. I tossed the phone onto the passenger seat and slammed my car into drive, pulling out so quickly that my tires actually kicked up dust, like Joe Mannix when he was on a case. I looked back at the restaurant in time to see someone who looked and dressed very much like Clive Albans also exiting the building, heading toward the other side of the parking lot. I decided that it was more important to follow Boone, so I sped across the lot toward the exit he had taken. I needn't have bothered, as Boone's van merely crossed the busy street and pulled into one of the surface lots in front of the Mall of America. He could have walked the distance in just about the same amount of time. I followed and found a spot two rows down from his. I then slumped down in my seat and peered over the steering wheel as he crossed the parking lot, heading toward the entrance door. I watched him go and then decided that, since I had trailed him this far, I might as well continue with this plan. I got out of the car and headed toward the entrance that he had just stepped through. The fourth floor of the Mall of America is referred to as their entertainment complex, although that's really overstating it, as it isn't all that complex or even vaguely intricate. It consists of a couple of bar nightclubs and a massive 16-screen movie theater. I stepped off the escalator in time to spot Boone as he bought a ticket from a theater employee ensconced in a glass booth and then walked into the theater lobby. 
From where I was standing, I could just barely hear the voice of the ticket seller as she said, Enjoy your show. Through the windows into the lobby, I watched Boone as he got his ticket torn by a ticket taker who then directed him to the left side of the lobby. Boone disappeared down the hall toward one of the eight theaters on that side. I stepped up to the glass ticket booth and had a sudden vision of myself stumbling into eight different dark auditoriums trying to find the one Boone had picked. I looked up at the list of movie choices, and nothing on the board screamed out as something that might have attracted the movie fan in Boone. Remembering that simplicity was always the simplest solution, I opened my wallet and said to the ticket seller, I'll take a ticket for whatever movie the last guy asked for. I pulled a 10 out of my wallet and looked up to see a blank-faced teenage girl, all red freckles and braces, staring back at me like a confused guppy. What? she asked, her voice amplified and disembodied, floating out of a small speaker on the counter. The last guy, I repeated slowly. I want a ticket for the same movie he bought a ticket for. Another stare, blanker than the first. I have no idea what movie he asked for. It was less than 30 seconds ago, I said, trying to keep an edge of exasperation out of my voice. It wasn't a compelling choice, she said flatly. I decided another approach was in order. I gestured toward the side of the theater he had gone into. Which theaters are on that side, I said. She squinted as she thought about it. Theaters one through eight. Terrific, I said. I'll take one ticket for theater eight. It's already started. I've made my peace with that, I said through gritted teeth. She sighed, as only a teenage girl can, took my tent, and pushed a ticket at me under the glass. As I headed into the lobby, I could hear her final rote words echoing out of the small speaker. Enjoy your show! When I presented my ticket to the ticket taker, I put the same question to him. He was a very tall kid with a thick mop of brown hair and heavy black-rimmed glasses. The last guy who came in here... Which theater did he go to, I asked, gesturing down the hall to the left. The kid perked up, clearly eager for any interaction above and beyond the traditional repetitive ticket transaction. Oh, let me think. He screwed up his face and actually scratched his head in thought. Auditorium 3, he said proudly. I sent him to Auditorium 3. Thanks. I said as I handed him my ticket and headed toward the auditorium Boone had disappeared into. Several hours later, I emerged from Auditorium 6, following Boone as he exited and moved mercifully toward the main lobby. If he had headed into another auditorium, I might have begun to scream. In the intervening hours, I had watched parts of five different movies with Boone as he moved sporadically and nomadically from auditorium to auditorium. I had forgotten my phone on the front seat of the car, so I had no idea what time it was when we left the theater. I was thankful that Franny had forced two wrapped brownies on me as they provided sustenance during movies two and three. I did sneak to the bathroom briefly during movie four, but that was really the only break I got. As to the movies we saw, 
Since we went to each one after it had started and left before it had concluded, they all had congealed in my brain as one long, epic, romantic comedy with action and vampires. And there was something about a talking dog. The rest is very hazy. I stepped out into a sharp, cold night, feeling oddly jet-lagged by the afternoon's movie-going experience. I crossed to my car and tried to keep out of Boone's line of vision as we traversed the parking lot in search of our respective vehicles. I found mine before he had located the gray van, which gave me a chance to check the time on my phone and see if I had any messages. I was surprised to see that it was only a little after 8 o'clock. My internal clock would have believed anything up until 11.30 or 12. There were no phone messages and no further texts from Megan. I turned on the car, flipped on the lights, and pulled out into traffic right on Boone's tail. He pulled out of the lot and hit the nearby freeway entrance at about 50. It was all I could do to keep up with him. Traffic was light, so it was relatively simple to keep him in my line of sight as he sped down Highway 77, took the entrance to 494 West, and then transferred to 35W North. Boone surprised me by getting off the freeway before downtown, pulling off at the Lake Street exit. I followed, keeping several car lengths back so as not to spook him. I thought he might be headed into one of the bars that line Lake Street near the freeway to begin setting up for a DJ gig later that night. However, he revealed his true intentions by pulling up in front of a small but well-trafficked liquor store. By the time I found a place to park, he was already out of the car, into the store, and back with a small brown paper bag in hand. He resumed driving, and I followed as he continued north toward downtown. I still wasn't entirely clear on why I was following him. His verbal tick certainly identified him as the man who called Franny that morning, and if Boone was truly concerned that he had killed Gray, then he warranted observation. By fate or chance, I turned up in his apartment parking lot just as he was leaving, but there had been nothing outwardly sinister in his actions or behavior. However, something in my gut told me to keep following him. Some might call it intuition. Franny, I would imagine, might assign a more supernatural explanation. As we made our way through downtown, I was jarred out of this train of thought when Boone made a sudden turn into a parking ramp. The ramp adjoined a high-rise apartment complex on 3rd Avenue right near the river. The building, a 30-story tower called the Carlisle, was a relatively new addition to the Minneapolis skyline. I hesitated for a moment, not sure if I should risk following him into the ramp, but a honk from a car behind me made the decision easy, and I hit the gas and pulled in. Boone found a spot right away, so I rolled past him, keeping my head turned away to avoid identification. I found a place several spaces ahead and slipped into the spot. I heard his van door slam just as I shut off the engine. I got out slowly, peeking over the top of the car next to mine to make sure he wasn't headed my way. He wasn't. He was headed toward the main door to the building. I got out and followed, stopping for a moment to peer in the passenger window of his van. The interior of the vehicle was a complete mess. A trash can 
on wheels. But one piece of garbage immediately caught my eye. A pint of Southern Comfort sat on the passenger seat, resting on top of the brown paper bag it had come in. The bottle appeared to be completely empty. Clearly, Boone was fortifying his courage for reasons yet unknown. As I approached the main entrance, I could see Boone standing in the building's entryway, using the phone on the wall to call one of the tenants. I stepped back against the building, feeling a bit silly, but recognizing that it would be even sillier to get spotted now, after all I'd been through with him today. I peered around a corner and saw him hang up the phone and then heard the distant sound of a buzzer as the electronic lock buzzed to admit him. He stepped through the door and across the lobby into a waiting elevator. As soon as the elevator door shut, I sprang out of hiding and moved quickly into the entryway. The door to the lobby had relocked, barring my access. However, I could see the elevator from the entryway, and more importantly, I could see the floor indicator above the elevator door. I watched as the numbers climbed, finally stopping at 23. The illuminated numbers held at that point for a few moments and then began to descend. Since Boone had entered the elevator alone, I felt it was a safe bet to presume that he was now on the 23rd floor. Next to the phone on the wall was a large display board listing the last names of the tenants and their respective phone codes which visitors could use to call to get buzzed in. Next to the phone was a cork bulletin board with messages for the tenants from the management and listings of condos currently for sale or lease. I began to scan the long list of names and codes by the phone. I didn't have to go any further than the D's. The name Dupree immediately caught my eye. Ariana Dupree, former lover to Boone's current lover, Nova. Assuming, of course, that Boone and Nova were still a couple. Given the way they were arguing at the reception, they could easily have since broken up. And now he'd waited all day to come down here and had even swallowed a pint of whiskey to get up the nerve to do whatever he was about to do. I yanked on the front door without really believing that it would open and I wasn't disappointed. I was about to pick up the phone and call Ariana's number when salvation came in the form of two yippy little dogs. Princess! Duchess! Princess! Duchess! The dog's owner, a blue-haired woman of a certain age, perfectly tailored and coiffed, was doing her best to negotiate the lobby. For their part, the two little pedigree mutts were doing their best to head in completely opposite directions. Although their combined weight may have been pushing four pounds, their antics were overwhelming Mrs. Bluehair. She pulled and tugged and cajoled and begged her way across the lobby. When she finally made it to the front door and hit the latch to open it, I was standing by at the ready. I swung the door open for her with one arm and with the other reached across the small foyer and opened the outer door as well. Thank you so much, she said, barely registering my existence, as she cooed and pleaded with the two little squeaky furballs. Come on now, girls, time to go tinkle before we go to bed. Time to go. I could hear her voice as she struggled to maneuver the two dogs to a small patch of green directly in front of the building. Before the front door had even closed, I was in the elevator 
and on my way to the 23rd floor. It was a quick ride up, so fast that I didn't really have time to come up with a plan of action before the elevator came to a smooth stop and the door slid open. I stepped out of the elevator and into a quiet hallway. I stood for a moment, listening for voices, hoping that would give me a clue as to where to head next. But the only sound was the elevator as its doors closed behind me. I looked to my left and saw four highly polished wooden doors, two on either side of the hall. A look to my right revealed a mirror image of what I had just seen on the left. The only difference was that one door at the far end on the right appeared to be slightly ajar. It might have been a trick of the light, but I moved toward it anyway. The hall was deathly quiet, and my shoes made virtually no sound on the thick carpet. The door was open a crack, and a slim sliver of light shone through in the space between the door and the doorframe. I knocked on the door softly, pushing it open as I did. Hello, I said, my voice cracking from lack of use. I consciously lowered it an octave so as to sound less like a teenager. Hello, anyone home? The apartment was dark, lit only by the ambient light from the skyline visible through the large picture windows in what I guessed to be the living room. Something stirred to my left, and I turned quickly, only to realize that it was merely the sheer white curtains that hung on either side of the sliding door to the terrace. The door was open, and an intermittent breeze lazily swirled the curtains. I took another step forward, and my foot hit something hard. At first I thought it might be an ottoman, but I quickly realized that the dark lump at my feet was Boone, crumbled over in his dark wool coat. I knelt down to check his condition, resting my hand on the carpet for support. The carpet seemed to slide out from under me, and I realized that the spot was warm, wet, and sticky. I brought my hand in front of my face, and in the dim light, I could see that it was covered with what looked like blood. Then something hit me, very hard, in the back of the head. I could hear what sounded like sirens off in the distance. And then everything went black. And that's chapter 14. You know, this is the first time in the series that Eli gets conked on the head unconscious. Uh, The problem with an ongoing series like this is that you've got to keep putting your main character uh, in danger without killing him. So he does get hit on the head more than the average person. In fact, it even becomes kind of a running gag with the doctor in the ER. So if you're you're doing a drinking game with Eli being hit on the head, this is the first time you should take a drink. (laughs) He's got a soft melon. That's what they say in the business. He's his melon, very soft. He goes out very quickly. Uh, We got a ton of links in the show notes, uh, including Jay Johnson on soap. There's a handful of television magic performances by the great Harry Anderson. Uh, Absolutely worth looking at. He's so much fun. And I would recommend to any magicians out there, if you haven't uh, purchased Harry's Penguin Magic Lecture, uh, it is an absolute must have. I think it's like three hours long. And yeah. he just goes through everything in his act, including uh, a really interesting way of performing and revealing and doing the magic square uh, a way I'd never seen done before, which is pretty surprising. Yeah. And it's um th- that I reached out to, I think I reached out to Harry Anderson 
via uh, after watching the lecture, I think I emailed Harry because uh, he gives you an email address. So I emailed him and I said, hey, I, I, I'm fascinated by that magic square. Uh, I'd like to buy it. And about a month later, I got a, a, an email back from from Meyer Yedid saying, hey, uh, Harry reached out to me that you reached out to Harry. I have the rights to all of his stuff. If you want to buy it, you can get it from me. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I didn't get to talk to him, but sort of. Yeah, one degree, but you're already one degree with Jay. So yeah, right. you were there. Anyway, thanks for joining us on this one. Our next episode, like we mentioned, we'll have Derek Hughes and Nick DeFat. And uh, not only is it a great conversation, but a great after conversation as well. So sign up, uh, subscribe to YouTube, subscribe everywhere you can to the podcast. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're going to miss something. Uh, you And who'd want to miss something at this point? Not me. I know that for sure. So why don't you take us out, Jim? I think I will. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.